Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. Today we're talking law and uh, more specifically a new book called um, The Filmmaker's Legal Guide by Tony Morris. Hello Tony. Hi there Stuart. Do you want to give us a brief introduction to yourself as to who you are, who you work for and and, you know sort of how this book came about? Yep. Well, my name's Tony Morris. I'm a media lawyer. I've been doing it for many, many years. I work with film producers. I also work with television, music, and a whole load of other uh, media companies and producers and individuals and creatives. Uh, one of the things I do is I work uh, quite a bit with the Rain Dance organization, and I teach on one of their courses. I teach the legal module for producers. Okay. Um, and I try and distill into a two and a half hour session, uh, three times a year, everything I know that um, uh, I would think that a producer would need to know or a filmmaker would need to know in terms of the legal aspect of filmmaking. Uh, and in the course of doing that, uh, I've been frequently asked by uh, the students who are mainly uh, young producers, but where could they find all of the information that I provide in a book? And apart from great, huge American tomes, yeah. I couldn't find anything. And what I also observed was that the books that are, are out there on the American market are very legal very very legalistic, they're very technical and what I wanted to do was to try and convey what I convey in my lectures which is something that's practical, down to earth and essentially is a useful how-to book with all the key things that a filmmaker needs to know from a legal point of view which of course, as you've discovered from reading the book yourself Stuart there's, there's quite a lot of different legal aspects to filmmaking yeah, no, and I think I think the thing for for the listener is that when you start reading it, the book is very much about prepping you for the legalities of filmmaking, not not completely filling every single gap there is. Because obviously, a big caveat to the book is this isn't a replacement for legal advice because the variables are infinite on every project. So you don't want to. But what it does do is it gives you an insight into the very very the high level principles as to what you're about to walk into when making a movie, TV show, radio show, whatever. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and and, and it, is, it, it is intended to be practical. And at one level, in fact, you know, you might use it instead of a lawyer where you're on a very low or a no budget type uh, project, something uh, that you're doing for the first time where the question of, of a legal budget is completely uh, not, not possible. There are a lot of practical hints about how to do things which do protect you. And the problem, of course, is that and we have this quite frequently. Uh, you get a young uh, producer that, that makes a, a student film, for example, yeah. and it gets picked up by a broadcaster or someone wants to put it on Netflix or whatever it may be. And all of a sudden, there are legal issues because uh, even if it's a, a, something that he's shot on some fairly low-key equipment using his fellow students as the actors, as the composer, there are various rights that arise, there are various legal obligations that arise, and also there are restrictions on the way that you can use what it is you've shot. And all of these are very basic points that are replicated on a grander scale in big productions, in, in, in um, theatrical feature productions, and so on and so forth. Yeah. And there, there, there are just some simple uh, things that, that, that a producer needs to know from day one. For example, if you uh, get one of your mates to appear in a student film, and you tell that mate, um, this is going to be for you know, the Edinburgh Student Film Festival. Yeah. And I'm not going to pay you anything, but I'll put your name on the credits and, and you know, people might well see what you've done. Uh, the consent that that actor or performer implicitly gives to having their performance uh, filmed was in the context of that film being shown at the Edinburgh Student Film Festival. The question that you might ask is, if Channel 4 comes along and says, why, we want to put this on a, a student film night, can Channel 4 do that without a problem arising with the actor? Because when asked to give his performance, uh, the actor uh, was only told that the film was going to be uh, shown at a film festival, not on television. Right. And there's a, a, a very important principle that when you're using a performance or, or a bit of uh, footage or a bit of music, in the absence of a clearly written uh, license or, or, or an assignment, we'll talk about those if you like, mm -hmm. setting out precisely the extent to which that performance or bit of footage may be used, then the only rights the filmmaker acquires um, are those that were in the contemplation of the parties at the time when the film was made. Um, and that, that basic principle runs through an awful lot of contract, contracts and rights that apply to a filmmaker. So, you know, lesson number one, uh, even if it's a very primitive piece of paper that you get someone to sign, uh, it is worth getting a consent from your actor, from your composer, making it clear that you, as the filmmaker, may use that performance or that piece of music or whatever it is uh, for all of the purposes of the film, for the life of copyright of the film, and for use in, in whatever media you have in mind. Okay. So it's almost, like, it's almost like everything you're doing, you're assuming 
You're assuming big success no matter how limited your ambition is to start with. I think that's a very good way of putting it. If you if you go on that basis, um, then you know you're not going to get frustrated because one of the things that I see in practice, particularly well, well, even with more sophisticated filmmakers, is two or three or four people will go into a project with the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the relationships uh, break down, if it is the case that there is no document, no uh, documentary evidence or, or, or agreement in place setting out what the rights and obligations are in the relationship, there's a fight. And what might have been a reasonable project just gets submerged in, in fighting. <laughs> so uh, a specific element of that is commissioning, isn't it? So when you, when you actively seek someone's involvement, um, say like a screenwriter, so say this student film, you ask someone to do the screenplay, yeah, um, and maybe no, maybe th- maybe there is some money involved, and you can afford to pay them some money. Yeah. Um, what's the? And this is where I think in the commissioning, and then who the copyright of that screenplay is assigned to, and how that's dealt with as part sure. of the process of commissioning. So I think from what I basically understand is that if I pay you to write me a screenplay, unless I contractually assign it back to me as the copyright of that screenplay you write then it stays with the writer, doesn't it, the copyright, even though yeah. they've paid for it. Right, so, so, so basically there's a few points here, Stuart, that, yeah, that you picked up on. Uh, the first thing is that, that copyright is a property right that arises as a matter of law in an original artistic, musical, dramatic or literary work. Yeah. Um, and a screenplay is a literary work. And when you write a screenplay, it has a copyright, and that copyright lasts for the life of the author, so the screenwriter, and for a period of 70 years after his death. And that is a a matter of copyright law that's enshrined in English law under what we call the Copyright Designs and Patents Act of 1988. Okay. So the author of of a literary work is the first owner of the copyright in that literary work. Got you. So in the circumstance that you've described, let's say that you, Stuart, are the writer, and Mm -hmm. I am the uh, producer, and I offer to pay you £5,000 to write a screenplay uh, for a, a theatrical movie, and there is nothing else... Uh, confirmed, there's nothing in writing, uh, and you turn up uh, six weeks later with the first draft, and I write the check out for five grand. Uh, there's a contract. You've you've performed your your side of the contract. Uh, I've performed mine, and I've got a screenplay. Uh, one of the most common common mistakes and misapprehensions that we see in the office time after time after time is the belief the wrong belief that by making that payment the producer becomes the owner of the copyright in the screenplay that is not correct in the absence of a written assignment and one of the few uh, contracts that does need to be in writing because yeah. all contracts can be enforceable is an assignment of copyright. And if you're producing a film, one of the key 
components of that film is the copyright in the screenplay and if you're the filmmaker you will want to own that screenplay therefore you must thou shalt obtain a written assignment by the screenplay writer of the copyright in the screenplay to the producer or the production company otherwise all that the producer or production company has is a license to use that screenplay and that license will be limited to uh, the purposes that were in the reasonable contemplation of the parties at the time of the commission. Now where it becomes problematic is for example where um, the example I just gave, you know, I commission you to write a screenplay and I tell you it's for television and then it turns out to be a theatrical movie and you might say, well, if I had known it was going to be a movie, I would have charged £15,000 for, for my work and not 5000 Right. So uh, all of this is, is something that needs to be clarified uh, in terms of what is intended and the best position for a person or a producer who is commissioning another party to work on uh, the production is to require confirmation in writing that the copyright and all and any other rights in and to the commissioned work, which in this case is a screenplay, are assigned or transferred outright to the producer for the life of copyright in that work in order that the producer may use it as the producer may wish uh, in all territories and in all media, then there's no argument that the producer can do just that. That, that for me, is one of the biggest lessons from your book. It's, I mean, it's a real simple one, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's not an obvious one from... Um from the way that, that, that people talk about the relationship between a producer and a screenwriter. Um, and um, just to take that scenario to, to, to its kind of a, a maybe a, a more horrendous conclusion, if that producer doesn't do the assignment and the screenwriter has written that in good faith because he said it was for a TV show and producer, another producer comes along and says, have you got any screenplays that I can make into a film? Is that, is that copyright holder... Screen, screenwriter in the position to then sell the screenplay again as the copyright holder. Once, right, okay, so uh, once ownership of copyright has been transferred outright to another party, yeah. that party can do what they like with it, subject to any restrictions that may have been written into the agreement. Yeah, but so I think, it, uh, I'm thinking where there is no, where there hasn't been the agreement, where we, the nightmare scenario we started with, where you just pay the five thousand pound and we walk away, and the the implicit agreement is it was going to be made into a TV show. Is the screenwriter who now still owns the copyright able to go and sell it some, sell it somewhere else? Is that right? Um, that would depend on the circumstances. Okay. In theory, yes. Um, but it, you know, the, the the producer may say, "Well, look, I've paid for it, and I do have a right to use it." Okay. okay. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, it's an exclusive right. But the you. fact that you can ask the question, hmm. and you know, I'm struggling to give you a, a definitive answer, makes it even more uh, a requirement that for these type of commissions, even an email can 
confirming what the arrangement is, mm-hmm. clarifying the principal terms, um, is better than nothing. And ideally, you would have a written contract setting out uh, what the key uh, elements are. And I think in the book, there's in one of the appendices, there is a specimen of a, a commissioning agreement there. There is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so the, the, the other thing that springs to mind then with this is obviously screenplay is, is the, the sort of, I guess, the foundation of a, of a production. And you may well have archive footage, you may well have music, you know, either composed music or licensed or bought music that's already been written, um, animation you might use and so on and so forth. Uh, and, and I think even the example you give is even computer programming comes under, comes under copyright, you know, as an original piece of work. So if you do some After Effects in a scene or something, so there seems Visual to me absolutely yeah. Yeah. So it seems to me that the implicit message here is that as a producer, then one of your jobs is going to have to be keeping a bloody good record of the of the created works you keep bringing into your production. If you if you lose sight of any of it, any one of those little ingredients could undermine your finished production, couldn't they? No, that's exactly right, and it's it. it it's what I usually open my lectures or my lecture courses with. Yeah. Uh, or, in fact, when clients come into the office, that, that, you know, when you're a little kid, you collect stamps or stickers and, and you need to get all the stickers to make up the set. When you're putting a film together, you're collecting rights and uh, you need to get all the rights in the right place and the contracts that you enter into uh, constitute the glue that holds those pieces together. Mm. Yeah, that was that was, it was again. That's a really sort of, as, as a, it's a real. Pra- it's not a very exotic part of making a film. It's a very practical, pragmatic element, isn't it? That you, you, if you keep sight of this, then you'll you'll have a much better product in the end. Well, th- th- it's all about what we call chain of title. Mm-hmm. Uh, chain of title is the term that that's used to denote, uh, in essence, all of the contracts that go to make up uh, a film. So that, um, for example, uh, when you go to a distributor, yeah. uh, let's say that, that we make a, a film in Britain um, and, you know, you're the producer and you, you get all the contracts from all the actors, the, the cinema photographer, the scriptwriter, the composer and Uncle Tom Cobley and all the location agreements mm. and you put them all in a neat file in, in the correct order. Uh, a distributor... Uh, will want to know that you can verify your chain of title. When you deliver that film to the distributor for America or France or, or Africa or Australia, wherever it is, they will want a warranty in the distribution agreement. And a warranty essentially is a promise mm. that you cleared all the chain of title rights. Okay. Um, and if, if there's a problem, they'll want you to be able to back it up. Mm. So that if, for example, you have not cleared a bit of music and uh, let's say that you, for, for whatever reason, you decide to put a track by Coldplay on your soundtrack and you haven't got a clearance from their record company and their music publisher to do that, when that film goes out in the cinemas or, or on TV in America and somebody in Coldplay is watching it and thinks, hang on a minute, I don't remember giving permission for that. <laughs> you've, got a, you've got a significant problem. Yeah, yeah, of course. Because yeah. you will not be able to say, here is a license to use that Coldplay music in my film. 
so in a sense, of, uh, if a film if a film is at the top as chain of title, then there's a there is just a stack of papers, isn't it, that sit below that title that say this is what a film's made up of. It's almost like all these other rights that have been assigned to you are the DNA of the film, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, I've got you know big, I've got big lever arch files here on my uh, shelves here in my office of films that we've worked on recently or that we're still working on. And as the agreements go out, um, I try and get my clients uh, to actually sign uh, uh, wetting versions of them, as we call them. Mm. And I get the originals and I keep them. And then I know that they're all in one place. If you don't already subscribe to BritFlix, just sign up for free at iTunes. And you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at BritFlix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. It was interesting. It was, uh, it was it was fun for me to read the um, the, the bit about just thinking of something like clothing. Uh, when, when we met originally, we talked about managing bands, and I remember having to sign a release form for the TV program One Tree Hill because one of their characters mm-hmm. wore my band's T-shirt, and they didn't right. want me saying you're not allowed. So we got this fax through from LA saying, "Will you clear this?" And it was sort of permission, and, and it was interesting to see that's a, that is a, that is a, at the time I would never have given it a thought. I wouldn't if I had a saw it, I'd have just been happy. But I didn't. You know, I think I think most bands would be quite happy to have their t-shirts worn in films. Yeah, uh, you, you might get big stars that might be a bit precious about it. Um, you know, there is a quite a difficult line to draw in terms of you know. Using a Kellogg's cornflake box on a breakfast table in a in a you know in a scene or something like that. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of producers that 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 will turn the label away from the camera or leave it off shot. Uh, there's some producers that will you know get a letter from Kellogg saying they haven't got a problem with the box being on the table and so on and so forth. Um, but technically, where you're reproducing. Um, a Kellogg's cornflake box. There's copyright in the artwork on that box, and you're reproducing it. Now, one of the hardy perennials of uh, groups of filmmakers chatting about what they're doing is the idea that the the idea is not copyright. You can't copyright an idea, right? Which is clearly in your book as well. It definitely says that that isn't. But obviously, as as creatives, we need to talk about our ideas to get them commissioned, and. Um, there, there seems to be right. two, there seems to be two clear ways to go to help protect yourself for that. There's the there's the the simpler way, which is an NDA, a non disclosure agreement, with the you ask the commission editor or the person you're sharing the idea with, the investor say, to sign an NDA. And obviously yep. they 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 quite rightly might go, I don't want to sign that because um, in the back of the mind they're going, I'm doing a film about tigers, so um, I don't want to sign an NDA to say I can't do a film about tigers. That you're writing um, now in this, and, and, and you use this example for others as well, is that then the email becomes the producer's friend. So when you've had the meeting yes. where the NDA has not been signed, your email after that meeting is what becomes almost like an NDA in some senses, or at least a line in the sand that says we've discussed this. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of confirming things in writing, and even in the days before email, and I, I started law yeah. practice quite a long time before uh, uh, email. Uh, mm. Confirming things in writing is second nature to a lawyer. It's 
not necessarily second nature to a creative. Um, but but I, I, this is one of the questions that I get asked most frequently, particularly by um, sort of entry-level producers who, who, who don't really um, understand difference. Um, if you sit down in a pub and tell someone your idea that, that there's no copyright in it, it's not written down. Copyright only arises in the um, recordation, the actual physical reproduction of an idea. So, for example, if you've got an idea for a script, and in fact I've just literally uh, started off on a co-production where the person only had the idea. Okay. Uh, she's a, 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 a English is not her first language. She's from overseas. She's written or conceived a brilliant story. Mm -hmm. um, she got a friend. She, she didn't know enough English to be able to express it in written English. She got a friend to write the the story down. And at that point, there's a copyright in the story because even though it's only a two or three page summary. Essentially, it's a treatment, it's a literary work, copyright arises. Right. And we got her to do that because she'd started talking to a producer who, who has now optioned the idea, optioned the, 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 the project, if you like. Yeah. Um, and it was out there. This producer, in point of fact, it, it seems that he's a you know, pretty honourable guy. Mm. But he could easily have walked off with that idea because it hadn't been written down. Um, so um, what she could have done, uh, in, in addition or as an alternative to uh, what I did with her, was to have written to the producer the day after uh, meeting him, or just after, and just saying, Dear producer, uh, I refer to our meeting of Wednesday afternoon when I described to you an outline for my project entitled Project X. Yeah. Uh, I gave to you the bare bones of this, uh, or the basic uh, outline of the story, which concerns, and then maybe one or two, three bullet points. Uh, although we did not sign an NDA, as far as I, I am concerned, I provided you with this uh, information about my uh, story concepts in confidence. Right, okay. And accordingly... Uh, right. If, if, if you decide to, 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 uh, that you want to go ahead and make a film based uh, on my story, it will be subject to uh, our agreeing further terms and so on and so forth. Now, as you rightly say, Stuart, that, that's not the same as a binding uh, NDA, a non-disclosure agreement, where yeah. uh, an agreement in which each party uh, agrees to respect the integrity of that information and whereby the recipient, the producer, is not going uh, agrees in that document not to um, use the idea without consent. Uh, even though that's not uh, the case, there is lots of common law... Uh, which has been applied by the courts that will imply a duty of confidence and will imply uh, obligations arising from that duty in the sort of circumstances where information which is of which is apparently of a confidential nature is given in circumstances where one would reasonably expect the other party to respect the integrity of that um, information and by writing the you know and confirming what had happened yeah. as you, as you put there's a line in the sand there is some evidential uh, there's some evidence available should a barney 
occur subsequently that the writer, the creator of the um, of the story, can refer to. No, no, I think that that's a, 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 a valuable lesson, I think, in terms of um, any kind of subsequent conversations I'm certainly going to have um, with people, is that it seems a really simple way of, of ensuring that you, you, you cover the ground that you've covered in writing, as opposed to just simply walking away with a good feeling <laughs> that you've kind of had an interesting chat. Absolutely. In the, in the book, there seems to be that extra burden on the documentary filmmaker compared to the narrative filmmaker in terms of the, the, just the process that a documentary is made versus you, you, can, you can create a screenplay and that is your, your thing to copyright, whereas you know, a documentary can be, I've got an idea about following the chief executive of whatever around forever and a day. What, what, what is it that, that, that is that kind of natural, the, the sort of the natural extra burden that's on documentary people compared to the sort of narrative fiction? Am I, am I understanding that right in terms of what I've read? Um, right. I, I, yeah, I think there's a few things that you've read in the book that, that, that are coming through in that question, Stuart. Yeah, go on. Um, the, 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 one of them is, is, is making a, a, a drama or theatrical feature or TV show based on fact, which yeah. is one thing. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, on, from that point of view... Uh, there's no exclusivity in, 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 in history or, 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 or um, you know, real events and real... There's nothing to stop anybody uh, scripting a drama based on fact or, or to make a documentary about, you know, the earthquake in Japan or the tsunami, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. But in terms of actually putting a documentary together... Um, it's all about sources. So, for example, I think I, I think the, the example that I used in the book. By the way, most of the examples in the book are uh, either based on. Well, some of the examples are actually cases that have been decided in court, mm -hmm. uh, which I've watered down in sort of manageable chunks. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them are based on cases that I've ha personally handled or matters that I've handled, where I've obviously anonymised the facts, but. The documentary one that you're uh, referring to, I think, was the um, was the uh, I, I can't remember how I put it in in the book, but but some uh, was it the the Vietnam uh, draft dodgers who set up yeah, a, yeah. a colony in, um, in the thing, which is kind of based on on a film that a client of mine is currently uh, making. Yeah. Um, and and what was particular about that? is that in these particular circumstances, um, this little community had uh, made a lot of Super 8 footage in the 60s and 70s of, of their lives. There's obviously no sound on that um, footage, yeah. but it's contemporary film. And in order to use that, the filmmaker necessarily needed to make a kind of an agreement and in fact, we drafted a written agreement for that filmmaker, um, enabling her to acquire certain exclusive rights over that footage in order to use it in the documentary that she was proposing. Mm. But in terms of documentary, um, you're quite right. There's all sorts of elements that might be used. So there might be uh, other footage, there might be stills, there might be sound recordings, there might be um, 
audio interviews, there may be all sorts of different bits and pieces that in theory you would need to get permission from copyright owners to include in the documentary. And some documentaries uh, makers will clear every piece of third-party uh, content. However, um, and I, this is slightly going off your question, but it's nevertheless quite important. Yeah. One of the key exceptions to um, securing consent from owners of other copyrights is fair use. And one mm -hmm. of the fair uses is for criticism or review. So in other words, if you're making a, a film about an Elvis impersonator, and in that film you use a 10-second clip of Elvis himself singing, I don't know, Hound Dog or, or, or Jailhouse Rock. Yeah. And uh, the context within which that footage is used in that documentary is quite clearly from what the the talking head or the interviewer or the narrative says is is well you know here's an example of Elvis's early rock and roll style that's criticism or review and no one is the the copyright owner of that footage would not be able to stop you including that within your film okay Provided you, 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 you give a credit or an acknowledgement, which is why quite often you'll see on documentaries, particularly TV documentaries, uh, where there are clips of other film, there'll be uh, a little, uh, there's a, some text in the bottom right-hand corner of the screen saying, you know, uh, Jailhouse Rock, copyright RCA recordings, 1956, whatever. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I, I'm not. I think I've kind of gone off on a bit of a tangent. From no, no, it covers, it, covers, it, covers it, it, it. It brings in other areas that I, I was I was going to try and get onto. But but uh, no, it, it it does. I mean, I was kind of the things I was thinking about was that idea that the notion, just the notion of packaging up a documentary is not as easy as packaging up a narrative screenplay. Because obviously, if I go into a room and say I want yes, to, do a it, it depends. I mean, um, we've done some quite interesting stuff with documentary makers at different times where they've needed to, you know, uh, if you're making something very controversial, then we'll have to view it for the purposes of, in case it's libelous, um, you know, you've got to be careful what you say about how you uh, critique someone, you can't, you can't be defamatory, you can't disparage them. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. The other thing that, that was that was really a real surprise for me to learn was um, this idea of passing off. And it, it sprung to mind because when I've been to Cannes Film Festival, and I know it's the same at the American film market, is that, you know, you get a lot of small production houses making fairly, fairly imitable um, film products to big Hollywood studio pieces. So, for example, there was the Guillermo del Toro movie, Pacific Rim. Now, kind of a couple of years ago when that was knocking about, there were posters riding around for a film called Atlantic Rim, for example. Right. And they didn't, and they looked pretty similar as as images go. Um, so it's, it looked like they were they were trying to sell a similar film off a, off a reputation of a, of a bigger film that's obviously being marketed. Now, I'm not making any accusations to Atlantic Rim. It just it just struck me as reading the stuff about passing off that that seemed like an example of it does that 
Am I, am I understanding it right? Absolutely. Uh, um, passing off arises where there's a deliberate uh, misrepresentation in the course of trade that may have the uh, consequence of creating confusion in the in, 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 in the market or in the in, you know for the public. So okay. the fact that you even commented on that yeah. would probably be prayed in aid by the Pacific Rim producers as evidence of confusion. The fact that a professional in the film industry thought that in some way there was a connection between these two films and that's what the law of passing off is aimed at so um yeah we we, we do get uh, well we've, we've we actually handled something this in the in in the office last year um where someone had done an imitative film of uh, a very successful um British film that a producer client of ours had produced yeah, and yeah. was clearly trying to cash in um, and essentially um, because there was a significant amount involved we did manage to get um, proceedings up and running uh, that effectively stopped the um, the the imitative producer and they had to make well they, they, it doesn't matter how it ended up but effectively they had to change what it was they were trying to do okay okay well I'm I'm conscious that you've got another meeting to go to um, are we are we still good for time uh, I think I'm going to have to go, but I mean, if you want to do a sort of second part on some other stuff sometime, I'd be happy to do it. That'd be excellent. No, I'd love to because I think I feel like we've only just started. And that's how the interview went down with uh, Tony Morris, uh, author of the Filmmaker's Legal Guide. Um, and I will indeed be uh, rearranging with him to um, to follow up that with part two and maybe even part three if we get lucky. Uh, I think there's a lot of ground we can cover. So if any of the listeners have got any specific questions you want covering in terms of uh, the law and your film, now might be a good time to uh, drop us a tweet at uh, at Britflix or at Leighton Rocks for myself. Um, the book itself, like I say during the interview, is a really, really good guide. Um, having studied law in different in different walks of life, different studies, um, it felt very much. It felt very much like it was removed from the usual kind of dry, dense legal text that you get with books that try to give the lay person um, some insight. So, to that end, I, I think for people that aren't technically minded, this is a really good book to sort of forearm yourself and therefore forewarn yourself about what legal things might be ahead. It's not going to make you a legal expert. It's The book's certainly not going to make you a lawyer. I mean, it's clear about that in the in the introduction. Um, but it does have um, a number of uh, appendices at the back, which provides you with some standard, some standard um, sort of contractual and uh, binding agreement sort of information. So you've got... Um, You've got an NDA, you've got an option to acquire underlying literature work, you've got writer's agreement, you've got director's agreement, producer's agreement, talent agreement, performance consent, commissioning agreement. Um, and and, and they're, they're all they're obviously very practical. I mean, obviously, there are, there are various versions of this online that are available, but this is... This is in the context of a book that you know that tells you that you know as of the thirtieth of June two thousand fifteen, it was all legally present and correct. 
Um, the book itself breaks down into various um, various big headings. Uh, the main ones being um, the sort of rights issue, and rights is broken down into copyright, acquiring copyright, protecting your idea, moral rights, performers' rights, and then there's the content itself. So we move into sort of the underlying literature work and what that means, legally speaking. Um, Third-party copyright and other materials, sort of fair use, which uh, Tony talks about in the in a little bit when we're talking about documentaries. Um, the use of interviews, um, certainly important for documentar doc documentarians. Uh, the use of music, title, name and trademarks, confidentiality, privacy, defamation, rights, publicity, sponsorship and so on. Um, then there's then there's a, the general overview of uh, contracts, which gives you that sort of gives you some basic understanding of how contracts meant to work, and um, that's sort of generally you know across the board, not just within uh, within producing a film and those kind of agreements. So yeah, I I, I am I, I thoroughly uh, endorse this uh, this book, and um, and would and certainly any aspiring producers out there or people looking to. Uh, to, to cut their teeth on it, will find it sort of invaluable. I think in the starting point, I think it it's um, it will start you off on the right foot, really, um, as opposed to sort of stumbling over those barricades and obstacles as you get to them, because you've not showed up what should have been a really simple thing in terms of um, the chain of title. Okay, well, look, um, thank you very much for uh, listening to me talk to Tony Morris about his book and my little. Uh, my little ramble there, sort of discussing the, more, the sort of finer details of what's in the book. Um, and uh, have a very good Christmas. Thank you. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Discover